You're listening to the Empty Stringers Podcast, where every week we talk about locating, catching, and the conservation of redfish. My hope is to share with you what I'm seeing from the polling platform so that together we can catch more fish. Think of it as your weekly fishing report. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. I'm your host, Matt Parrish, and we're going to get deep into the weeds on uh, some tide stuff this week because we have an extraordinarily high tide. We're going to talk about why that is and what contributed to it and when it's going to go away uh, somewhat. Uh, so before I get into that, I'm going to recap a couple of trips, talk about some things I saw on the water this week. Got out on the water with a customer, uh, Mr. Nick Root. Uh, Nick was the perfect customer. Uh, type of client that I'm looking for. You know, when I started this podcast, I had this master plan buried in the back of my mind that I was going to get my captain's license and that I was going to uh, cultivate an audience that wanted to come and fish in the same kind of ways that I wanted to go and fish. And so rather than putting the word out that, hey, I'm a captain. I take people on fishing uh, fishing trips, and then having to explain to every interested client what I do, what we're going to do, how this is extraordinarily different from your regular uh, chartered fishing trip, where you're just going to go throw cut mullet or live shrimp and sit there with a pop and cork or whatever, right? Like that's what that's what is out there. That's what uh, a lot of charter boats are doing and there's nothing wrong with that there's obviously a market for it not what i do it's not what i want to do i would turn down uh the trip if someone wanted me to take them to go do that i just have no interest in in doing it so we're in the back marshes we're hunting redfish as if we were stalking a whitetail buck with a bow that's the best example i can give of it and so I was really happy that uh, it's it's working. The clients that I've had out on the boat, they get it. They know what they're in for. And uh, Nick kind of had all of that wrapped up into one. He he liked to fish with conventional light tackle. He liked to fly, do a little bit of fly fishing. Uh, he was really excited just to be out in the marsh. And uh, we got into uh, a few fish. We had a school of redfish early on that Nick uh, landed. Uh, it was a smaller fish, but it was a, a school of small reds. Uh, up against the grass, Nick uh, laid his fly out in front of them and got uh, got that fish on the fly. And then uh, we landed a few more fish. We had a, another redfish on conventional tackle, and then we had a couple of trout here and there. Ended up having a great day on the water. The day it was the day before the full moon and so i was a little concerned about the full moon and we had action early and we had action late and that's kind of the way it works well the very next day i knew that we had the full moon and so i was expecting there to be action early and then action in the middle of the day and then to be kind of dead in between but we had two problems 
One problem was that we had an extraordinary an extraordinary high tide. High tide. It was 2.5 feet over MLLW when I launched the boat. And uh, it was actually maybe a little higher than that, maybe like 2.6. And that is a very high tide for the Galveston area. That tide uh, makes parts of the marsh disappear. Grass islands that were, uh, you know, a foot above the water, they're gone. They're now under the water. It changes the look of the marsh to where you can get lost. Uh, You can just get turned around. You can't get lost. You have GPS on your phone, right? But uh, you can really get turned around just because everything looks so different. So we had that working against us. What do the fish do when the water gets up that high? Well, I'll tell you that conventional wisdom says that those fish push further back uh, into shallower water and sometimes into areas where it was almost dry ground. That is true to a point, but this time of year, if you don't hear anything else that I'm telling you, you need to pay attention to what I'm telling you right now. This time of year, there are shorelines and islands within a marsh that have had shrimp hatch and that the shrimp are up in those grass lines on the shores and islands. They're particular shores and islands. When you find them, and the reason you'll know where they're at is because they are, uh, they're usually got some snowy egrets or some uh, ibises hanging out on the shore. You'll start to find schools of redfish around those areas. Those redfish are going to stay in those areas even when the water comes up to a 2 2.5. We got out there, found fish in similar areas. Now, those fish are not going to stay there. They're going to move. But they're going to move when they've exhausted that hatch of shrimp. Those shrimp get a little older and other parts of the marsh are going to start to hatch out. Other completely different marshes that don't have any hatches right now are going to hatch and it's going to kick off in other areas. So we're still kind of in that early stage and uh, it, it should just get better. But just because the tide went up doesn't mean that those shrimp disappeared. Now, the caveat to that is that the tide was not 2.5 this morning. It was 3.5. We're going to get into all of that here in a minute when I finish recapping these trips. So Friday, uh, you know, I had a great trip with, uh, with Nick. It wasn't, uh, we didn't catch as many fish as I had hoped we were going to catch, but for dealing with the extraordinarily high tide and, uh, and the almost full moon, we did all right. Friday I had, uh, Drew Selinski out, and uh, he's from Baytown. I'm from Baytown. Uh, he's got family in Highlands. I know some of his family in Highlands. Um, he looks like I did when I was 25 years old. And so we get out on the water, and uh, we're pulling the boat out. I forgot to tell you this. So when I was out with Nick, uh, I told Nick I'm going to pick him up at, at Lewis's Bay Camp at 6.30 a.m., right? I had a lot to do to get ready for that trip because I did some reorganizing of some of my tackle. I had taken my cooler off the boat and cleaned it and washed it and got new straps for it. So when I got there, I had to fill the boat up with gas. I had to restrap the cooler down. I had to reposition a few things. Um, it wasn't just my normal hop in and go. 
So I got there early. I got everything situated, but it was like 628 and I'm pulling, I'm backing the boat out of the boat lift. And I don't like to be late, even if it's 631. Uh, that may be silly, but I I don't like to show up past 630 if I told a customer I'm going to pick them up at 630. So I was in a little bit of a hurry, just ever so slight rush, because I wanted to make sure I was there at 630. Normally, when I back the boat out of the, the boat lift, I back it a good ways out. I kick it in neutral. I'll let it kind of self-drift, and it points the nose out uh, south, and I kick it in drive uh, forward and, and put on out, right? I got plenty of room to clear everything. Because I was in a hurry, I backed the boat out just as far as I thought I needed to turn it and get around the side of the dock. Well, I was wrong. I needed about three more inches, and I let the starboard gunnel slide underneath the dock between the water and the and the bottom wood of the dock, and it my front push pole holder hit the wood on the dock and snapped it in half. So now my front push pole holder doesn't hold my pole in. And I, I can't, it's a 22 foot long pole. I can't hold it the whole time I'm running through the marsh. So I'm in a little bit of a bind, but I go over there. I pick up Nick. Nick sees my situation and says, hey, I have a bungee cord in my truck. Do you want me to go get it? And I'm like, sure. So Nick saved the day with the bungee cord. I still have his bungee cord. He let me keep it. Uh, and so, Nick, I really appreciate that. I got a new push pole holder from uh, from uh, the Sabine shop. I went by there that day and uh, picked me up a brand new hat. Brian's about to have the hats on his website. They're slick. He's got socks, shirts, all kind of stuff. You should check it out. Um, it was cool. So I picked up some of that stuff. I got a new push pole holder and put it on the next morning. Uh, with Drew at my side. Drew had the correct star wrench that I needed. Um, and so I borrowed his little star wrench, ended up dropping it in the water uh, on the very last bolt. So um, you can see where this headed. I mean, if you're going to fish with me and you let me borrow something, you're probably not going to get it back uh, at this rate. So me and Drew back out of the boat lift. We are headed out. We get 20 yards off the end of the boat lift and we start feeling raindrops and I look around and I'm looking for lightning. I don't see any lightning. Uh, Drew is basically like the weatherman. He's always got nine different uh, weather apps pulled up on his phone. So he pulls it up. He looks at it. He's like, ah, it looks like, it looks like, you know, it's going to get us, but it's going to be quick. And I'm like, look, we can power through this and make it out there or we can hang back and wait and he's like i'm not worried about getting wet so we powered through and buddy we got wet we got pretty darn wet pushing through the marsh uh to get out to where we're gonna go and uh we get out there we get settled down uh drew catches a couple trout and we're pushing through the marsh and i look back and i'm like man that looks like uh, another couple of rainstorms headed our way and we pull up the radar and sure enough, we've got two rainstorms with a gap in the middle. But as it gets close to us, we cannot, the gap kind of disappears. There's nowhere to hide. And that 
rainstorm hammers us. We get soaked 10, 15 minutes straight. Nothing we can do about it. I tried to run out, hide from it. I waited too late. Just had the power pole down and let the rain get us. So that was uh, less than ideal. Get done with that. And uh, I'm like, man, we got to get some redfish in the boat. So we hit this uh, back shoreline and Drew pops a small redfish, probably around the 19, 20 inch range. And then we uh, move spots and Drew lands a flounder, nice flounder, probably 16, 17 inches. And then we're chasing a school. The school quits on us before we get there. We go chase another school. The school quits on us before we get there. And the tide is so high that you can't see the fish like you normally could because where the fish normally would have six, eight inches of water up against the grass, they've got a foot and a half. And they get a lot tougher to see. So we're moving along, and I'm really just desperate to put this dude on a school of redfish. And we get in this little back lake, and there's an egret sitting on the bank. And that egret, when we were pulling into that back lake, and I was pulling the boat through, he let us get way too close to him. And he told on himself when he did that, because normally when you get, you know, when you're, if you're casting distance to an egret, if they even let you get that close, they're gone. They're moving. They don't want no part of, of, of you. This egret let us get within maybe a half of a cast distance and didn't move. In fact, I thought it was going to spook off and it just kind of hopped over and stayed on this little island. And I was like, there is a school of redfish around here somewhere near that egret. That's why that egret wouldn't leave. And so we pulled on past that spot and I stayed in the area and just kept watching, just kept listening. I heard a toilet bowl flush I turned around, school of redfish working right over next to that egret. We moved uh, over there, had to nose the boat up into the grass, and Drew made a great cast uh, across the, on the other side of the bank of the island at the tip of this grass point, pulled it out in front of him, and wham, got his first sight-casted redfish, first tailing school of redfish that he had seen. And so that made my day. Uh, I just, I absolutely love to share that kind of experience with, uh, someone who hasn't had that opportunity. So that was cool. Uh, we ended the day with two redfish, a flounder and, uh, like three or four trout. I think it was kind of a grind. It's kind of a tough day on the way back. Uh, we look up and there, there is a rainstorm headed our way. It looks like it's sitting right over the top of my house in Bayou Vista. So we pull up the weather apps again and we're looking, there's no way around it. We're not going to be able to dodge it. You have to go clear to the south shoreline if you want to, if you want to dodge it. And the wind is up enough to where I don't want to make that journey. And so we just grinned and bared it. And uh, that last storm was probably the worst. Uh, we ran through that thing. Our clothes already soaking wet, but we had almost dried. Like my underwear was like about 50 or 60% dry when that storm hit us and soaked us to the bone shoes full of water uh underwear soaking wet just miserable and got back had to dry all our clothes out and all that stuff but i'll tell you what 
uh, there's a lot of people that would have been on that boat that have been like, uh, I'm soaked. Take me back. I'm done. Drew stuck it out <laughs> like a champ. It did not seem to bother him at all. And I, I really appreciated that because, you know, you're already out there. The fish are already wet. Like, let's, let's have a good time. And he did. He was a great sport. And I enjoyed that trip out with him. I hope that next time out we get on a few more schools of redfish because it was kind of a grind um, that day. But it ended up working out. So let's talk about this crazy tide. Today, I pulled the uh, the NOAA, NOAA website up, and Galveston Rail Bridge was 3.5 this morning. That is too high for my skiff to even fit under the rail bridge uh, leading out of Bayou Vista. That is a ridiculously high tide. That is such a high tide that it makes 90 to 95% of the marsh disappear. The marsh will look like uh, a wide open back lake with no grass in it. So that's just insane. Why is it doing that? So if you're interested in nerding out with me for just a minute, I would like for you to buckle up because here we go. What we have here is commonly, this is not a scientific term, it's referred to as a king tide. A king tide is what you would consider your highest tide of the year. And uh, why does it happen? Why did this particular one happen? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out a few things that I believe contributed to it. Some things I know that contributed to it and other things that I'm just, uh, you know, using my deductive reasoning skills to, uh, to talk through. So bear with me. But you have your strongest tide pools at the new moon and the full moon, okay? What do you have, uh, you know, at your, on Friday, we had a full moon, right? So the day or two before, the day or two after, always going to be, uh, including the day of, it's always a lot higher tide. The tide range is more. You're going to have a higher high and a lower low. The range, because of the gravitational pull of the moon, the tide comes from the Earth's rotation uh, and orbit around the sun and the moon's orbit around the Earth. And uh, the sun and moon both have a gravitational pull that affects the tide, but the moon is what really does it. That's what really gets uh, your, tide, your tide moving. So Friday we had a full moon. So we had a, a stronger pull, gravitational pull, which caused for a stronger, larger tide range, which results in a higher tide. That's why on Friday, it was 2.5, right? Well, here's an added uh, effect to that whole situation. So there is something called a perigee, P-E-R-I-G-E-E, perigee. Perigee is this thing that is used to describe the moon's uh, relation to the earth in, in miles, right? So every 28 days, 
the moon is at its perigee. That is its closest point of approach to the earth, which the moon is an average about 238,000 miles from the earth. Uh, It's perigee, meaning its closest point, the closest it's ever going to get to the earth is somewhere around 225, 226,000 miles. Okay. On Friday in that full moon, we had, uh, we were at the perigee. We were at 225 to 227,000 miles from the earth. The moon was right. So that's why you got that crazy high tide that bumped it up to abnormal levels, which was 2.5. Now, once it's at 2.5, you have two other factors that are making, uh, making this thing swell all the way up to 3.5, uh, which gets you to your king tide levels. Those two things are this. You had a southeast to an east to an east to southeast wind. The wind has been from the east uh, for the past, I don't know, week. And it's been, you know, a, a low trickle of east wind up until 15, 18, 20 mile an hour gusts, right? Friday, the wind was up. We had, you know, 15 mile an hour winds and it gusted up further than that uh, throughout the weekend. So that east wind, because our jetties face basically east and west, you're going to have anything that has a west in it is going to is going to suck tide out. Anything with an east in it is going to bump the tide up. If you have a northwest, it's really going to accelerate it out. If you have a southeast, it's really going to accelerate it in, which is what we've had. So it's making the tide periods last longer. The tide was supposed to swap over where I was fishing at 8.30 a.m. on Friday. It did not change over till 10 a.m. because of the southeast wind blowing in and your gravitational pull from the moon and this perigee that we're talking about. So the perigee does not always line up with the full moon or the new moon. Probably six to eight times a year, it does because it's every 28 days, which is not exactly uh, the the lining up with the the full moon uh, and new moon cycle. Okay, so it only happens a few times a year, and when it does, you get that extra strong pull. You add the southeast wind to that, that is slowing the outgoing tide and pumping up the incoming tide. More water is being kept inside the marsh areas. So on Friday, we were supposed to have a foot tide drop. We were out there all morning from 6.30 a.m. to 12, 12.30 p.m. And the tide went from 2.6 to 2.3. That's only three inches of tide movement, or it's, it's not on a perfect foot scale. So it's relatively three inches of tide movement out. That's not a good outgoing tide. And the reason that happened was because of that southeast wind pumping that tide up. Now, to add the last ingredient that really took the tide over the top, you have a shift in barometric pressure. When you have a storm system or a front moving in, which if you can hear, I don't know if you can, it's raining right now on my roof. It's Tuesday afternoon when I'm recording this. It's raining on my roof of my office. We've had a front system that is coming on shore now, but it was out in the Gulf uh, just 
a few days ago, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That shift and that drop in barometric pressure with that storm system moving in changes the pressure on on the water. It affects the tide. You will have a higher tide at a lower pressure. So drop of the pressure, the southeast wind, the perigee lining up with the full moon, that's how we ended up with this high tide. When is it going to go away? It's going to go away probably Wednesday night. Uh, We'll see if I was right. I mean, typically, if I'm going by the storm system and the wind, then it probably won't be out of here until Friday. But because I've got trips to run on Thursday and Friday, I'm hoping and praying that uh, as this front gets a little more on land and gets out of that Gulf area, that it's going to stabilize and a high pressure is going to come behind it and uh, and help with our situation. Plus, the moon is um, coming off of its full moon, so it's moving further away. Uh, just to give you a reference, if, if we were at 226,000 feet, uh, or sorry, 226,000 miles that the moon was from the Earth on Friday, it's at like 238,000 now. So it moves pretty quick, and it'll get all the way up to like 252, 255,000 uh, miles away from the Earth. It's just, its average is 238, and uh, we were at the perigee around 226. So as those things unfold over the next few days, uh, which is all happening before this podcast comes out, so we're going to get to see whether I'm right or wrong, but if I had to make a guess right now, I would guess that at a high tide on Thursday morning when I'm launching the boat, we're going to be at about 2.5 again. Uh, I hope I'm right because if it gets up to three, I can't get underneath the bridge, which means I got to go trailer the boat and change the game plan, which I will do if I have to. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. That is, uh, I know, probably a deep dive and maybe more than you even cared to know, but that's why you come here, right? Uh, that's why you come here. So that's, uh, that's what I like to do is dig into the weeds about how all this stuff is, uh, is going on. So let's go through a quick uh, gear rundown before we get to our Bible tidbit. Um, I had been asked, and I missed this question, and so I'm going back and I'm going to do a quick run through. I got a few questions on Instagram through Messenger that I just missed. I forgot to cover them on the podcast. They wanted to talk about basic gear. Um, Life jacket. I like the NRS boundary stuff. Uh, NRS makes good stuff. I have their boots. I have uh, their life jacket. Um, they, They make good stuff. They're comfortable to wear. I don't wear my life jacket on the skiff if I'm in shallow water because I can literally just step out of the water and, and, and stand up. Um, if I am going to cross uh, sketchy conditions, high winds, high waves, uh, if I was going to come out of Chocolate Bayou and there's uh, more than a 15-mile-an-hour wind, I'm probably going to put my life jacket on because it gets hairy uh, out there. But very comfortable to wear, has some storage pockets in it, I like their product. I use Laguna rods. I've got their lattice, their trident, their waiter too. I use loose custom light reels on all of those setups. I have a TFO uh, nine foot seven weight 
uh, fly rod with a uh, sage reel. I've also got uh, the one I told you about last week. I got the Scott um, eight weight uh, rod and then the sage uh, reel on that as well. So it's a Scott sector rod. I love that thing. I have not caught a fish on it yet, but that's because most of my time is spent pushing the boat around. So but I'm going to get there. I'll get a trip out by myself or I'll, you know, next time I'm just out with a buddy and we'll, we're taking turns on the platform. I'll, I'll hopefully get a shot at a fish. So, um, that's what I'm using. Um, other than that, I'm using down South lures on my paddle tails. Most of the time, I don't care what jig head I use as long as it has a screw lock at the base of the shaft. Uh, because I, I just won't use one that doesn't have a screw lock. Uh, I am, if I'm going to throw a hard bait, which I don't do very often, but if I do, and I do sometimes of the year, I'm going to throw, uh, Kevin's outside custom painted lures. They're just, his, his slogan says it all. Why throw ordinary? Why would you go pick some random, you know, pay $8 for some random hard bait, uh, from Walmart or Academy when you can get, uh, a reasonably priced custom painted, uh, lure from him. And, uh, they're just, they're better. Uh, so, so that's what I'm using there. Um, sorry for those of you that reached out about the gear stuff. I'm not a big gear nerd. I just get what I need. I'm I'm pretty much bare bones. I don't carry a bunch of extra stuff. Uh, the braid stuff, I just moved from the suffix to the Omni. I like it. And I, I think I like it better than I do the suffix. Uh, that's not the popular opinion out there right now, but it, it's what I like. I got the bright pink color. So, uh, all the redfish can see it coming, but that's pretty much it on gear. I don't get caught up in all the gear stuff. Uh, I just want what works. I want what I know is gonna is gonna do the trick for me, and uh, and that's you know that's about it. All right, now that we're uh, moving on to the Bible tidbit uh, part of this podcast, it's gonna be on the Book of Revelation. Now we're not. Go- I don't. I mean, it would take three days of continuous airing to to try even attempt to explain all of the book of revelation i'm not smart enough to do that anyway uh, nor do i have that much time so what i want to do i just started a bible study in the book of revelation uh, the church i go to near town church our pastor russell cravens is preaching through uh, the first part of the book of uh, revelation through the letters to the churches. And so as we entered into that, and as I was thinking about what I wanted to do for the Bible tidbit, I wanted to do a little bit of explaining so that if you are going to try and tackle this book, that you have a better footing to start on than what I think a lot of people today have. The first thing that you have to realize is that The author of this book, John, is exiled on an island called Patmos. The island of Patmos was a place where uh, uh, the Roman uh, emperor had, um, you know, sent uh, these Christians who he didn't want around for preaching the gospel, sent them to the island of Patmos as, uh, as a punishment. It was not a vacation island. It was a place where no one wanted to be. So John gets sent to the island of Patmos, and on the Sabbath, he has a vision from the Lord. And he writes 
letters, uh, basically, you know, Jesus appears to him and tells him, I want you to write down these things. And Jesus, uh, through the Apostle John, pens letters to these seven churches in Asia. Don't be mistaken. These are real churches that existed at the time. They are not some future churches that the the whole book of Revelation is not this futuristic sci-fi thing and every piece of it is going to happen in uh, some distant time that we don't know. That's not the way that that's just not true about the book. Okay. Those letters to the churches were actual churches that existed at the time because Paul, after Christ was resurrected from the dead and he appeared to over, you know, 400 people and then he ascends into heaven. Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. Paul goes and travels around uh, Jerusalem and, and uh, Greece and all these places to all these different cities like Corinth and Ephesus and, uh, and uh, you know, all the places where these churches were. And he preaches the gospel. And when he leaves, he leaves people that have converted into believing the gospel and they become Christians. And he leaves them behind and they start these little churches. And not like the churches we know today. These were small groups of believers. Um, some of them not so small, but they were local communities that gathered together. They ate meals together. They prayed together. They, they uh, helped each other in, in the community. And they did life together, right? And Paul writes these letters to him. That's the whole New Testament, right? Well, Jesus then in the book of Revelation is writing letters through the hand of John to these churches that he mentions in uh, the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, there are other things in the book that are descriptive, they're imagery, they're metaphors, um, like, oh, you get to chapter 13 talking about the woman and the dragon. And uh, that woman is Israel and the dragon is Satan. And, and uh, that child that the woman is, is giving birth to is Christ. Uh, there are those types of things in the Bible. But even that example I just used in chapter 13 was something that happened long ago. It wasn't, it's not something that's going to happen in the future. There are things in the book of Revelation that are going to happen in the future. I would be wary of any pastor that is out there preaching that you see typically on TV or you know in these other places that and they are saying uh, that the book of Revelation is primarily about the West America and its role in the end times and that. Uh, you know, Babylon is, uh, you know, imagery for America and all that is conjecture that they don't, they can't really know. And good, solid theological hermeneutics would lead me to tell you that most of what they're telling the masses is wrong. And so if you go to read the book of Revelation, which I highly encourage you to do, Understand that that book of the Bible was written for the people and the churches that existed. It was written to the people and the churches that existed at that time. 
but it was also written for us because learning through what God is telling those people, he's also speaking to us and into our lives. And there are future implications of the book, but it is not, uh, it is not intended to be read like a left behind, uh, book series. So I'll just say that, uh, I know that there may be some folks out there that that disagree with that. I just say, Hey, like it's not the end of the world that we disagree about that. I'm just, um, giving you my point of view and, uh, hoping that that helps you in your reading of the book. I'll go along and I'm going to go through the book again. This is, um, I've done several studies uh, through the book before, but I'm hoping I learn something new from it. Uh, I do every time. And so I'm excited about that. And as I do that, I'll include those in the Bible tidbit. I hope that you guys have a fantastic uh, week. I hope that you get out there and catch some fish. I'm going on the Sabine uh, dove hunt this weekend. I cut my finger wide open yesterday, had to go to the emergency room and get uh, like somewhere between seven to nine stitches. And so I'm going to just keep that wrapped up and out of the water. But I've got two fishing trips this week and then I'm going on a dove hunt. And so uh, my domestic coordinator is probably not going to be super happy with me when I get home because I'm going to be gone for so long. But, uh, you know, we got to do that from time to time. Uh, make them miss us. So hope you guys have a great week. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at emptystringers at gmail.com, Instagram at empty underscore stringers, TikTok at empty stringers, and Facebook at uh, the Empty Stringers Podcast. Also, I want to mention, I see through the analytics that some of you have started to migrate over to the Redfish Network. I just want to encourage you. It's not scary. It's not hard. You just search the Redfish Network in your search bar for whatever podcast uh, system you use, whether it's Apple or Spotify or whatever. It'll come up. Click follow or subscribe, and you will see my latest episode on there. You'll see the last Paddler's Playbook episode on there, and that's where all of the episodes are going to be going here in a couple of weeks and i don't want to lose all you guys because you go hey where'd the podcast go it's there it's it's on the redfish network just go over there and subscribe and uh we'll be good y'all have a good one and i'll talk to you next week